Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi-trans Lebanese and we're recording here in Houston and, and in Chicago, Chicago, right? Yes. <laughs> awesome. Can you introduce yourself? Talk about your background? Yes, my name is Layla Corey. As mentioned, I'm living in Chicago. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents are from Syria. Um, my dad from Damascus and my mother originally from Hama, my mother's family. They immigrated to the U.S. straight to Cleveland in the 1970s, where me and my three siblings were born and raised in Cleveland. Same timeline as Ellie. Her parents moved from in the 70s from Lebanon. Yeah. So. High five oh. for Levant people moving yeah. <laughs> in the 70s. So what are you studying in Chicago and what made you decide on the field? I'm in a grad program right now in my second year of a three-year program for architecture and historic preservation, which was a kind of a leap from what I was doing formerly. I studied interdisciplinary sculpture in my undergrad where a lot of my work was starting to kind of take form in architecture and focus on concepts around architecture and historic preservation. And physically, the processes I was using were mostly with architectural building materials. I was doing quite a bit of metal fabrication and pouring concrete. And something in me just wanted to kind of study those fields more formally, which is a crazy decision. I'm still adjusting <laughs> because the two things, as it okay. turns out, are very different. Yeah, that's really cool how you figured out. Well, I mean, you are figuring out a way to combine it. For example, in a piece called Near East, which I'm going to ask you about. Yeah, so we've seen on social media, your website and stuff, a piece called Near East. And links will be on our website. Yes. Uh, so can you describe the piece to the listeners and talk about what led you to create it? Yeah, absolutely. So Near East is a series of five ceramic sculptures accompanied by two digital images that I produced using a CAD software called Rhino and Photoshop. And I made these this last summer. Each of the five sculptures in the series represents a Levantine artifact that's currently held and displayed in the Louvre in their Near Eastern Antiquities collection which I visited in May of 2018. And for those who don't know, Levant, the Levant is the term that formally referred to the region surrounding Syria and Iraq. Yeah. So when I visited the museum, very little, of course, I was drawn to these objects because they were of Syrian origin, and I was kind of looking for any information that I could about them. Um, but very little was provided. Even the labels were in French. Like, they were very inaccessible. They were kind of toppled over each other in glass display cases. Uh -huh. and I wasn't able, I would go back and research, try to find information about the artifacts online. But all I could really find, the common ground, was that they were acquired. <laughs> and I uh -huh. say acquired, acquired using quotes, right. <laughs> uh, by French excavation teams in Syria during the mid-19th century. Um, Syria and Iraq, that is. And that was prior to the colonial French and British mandate of Syria and Iraq. Oh. That's kind of when that began, but acquisitions persisted rampantly over the course of the 20th century as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very fashionable for the Western explorers to go into some air and this is heavy sarcastic air quotes exotic location and mm -hmm. bring back artifacts that would be otherwise lost to time and civilization that feels like a form of colonization too in a way Ex exactly because you know yeah. these countries wouldn't be capable of preserving their own heritage themselves right they needed the western of course yeah. <laughs> assistance I, with that 
And even though it's always sort of been like academically a thing to talk about, I feel like it's almost gotten a big like public boost because of Black Panther and how Killmonger was talking about it. Because the opening scene was basically him looting a museum. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Good point. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't made that connection. But yeah, that resonated hard when I saw that scene. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Wow. I don't know. And the, it sounds like the way that it, these are displayed at the Louvre, it, it's not even very respectful or organized. Oh, yeah, it's like, like, here's some plunder. Well, and just like how disorganized it is and hard to even learn about at the Louvre. Yeah, and I think the most, kind of the most like blatant and shocking display of that disrespect, I think, was um, in the rooms, which is pictured in the artwork, which I'll get to. But it's the gallery that displays the Lamassu, which are those enormous bas-reliefs of the deities with the body of a bull or lion and the head of a man. Uh-huh. So those objects were stolen from modern day, what what is now north of Mosul in Iraq, okay. and was formerly part of a Mesopotamian city in the 8th century. They used to guard the gates of the city and the gates of the citadel where the temple and the palace were located, but they served, they were not only ornamental, but they served structural purposes to the architecture, so they were literally ripped out of there. It's like ripping the foundations out of a building. Oh my god. And if you were to see this room up closely, what they did is they've planted the reliefs and they've planted the structures into the marble, the white marble walls of the Louvre, which is just like so out of their context, out of their proper context and out of the place. And they situated these two deities to be holding up the art way of one of the galleries which is just so ridiculous oh man it's like not only was it stolen but it's now so misused yeah exactly what does near east mean to you so i looked so near east the title was um it's inspired by like the profession where these you know that allowed these objects to be stolen and that is near eastern archaeology basically i picked out these five i probably a lot more you know i was doing like quick sketches as much as i could but i settled on five artifacts that i couldn't quite understand what their functions were they had pretty some were more um like unambiguous than others but i recreated them large scale out of clay as a way to kind of bond with the objects and to understand them and then after hand building them one of them kept exploding in the kiln so really it's four but it's five in spirit yeah after doing that i created these renderings um these digital renderings which are like collages and i envisioned how the sculptures could take form in an installation potentially and act as a museum intervention. So I depicted the stolen artifacts in contexts of imagined repatriation or radical repatriation. So I drafted an architectural structure for the objects to live within and planted it in this image into the Louvre's near eastern wing as if to confront the museum. The structure that I built itself, I would love to make so many more. I did these really quickly, but the structure in these images is inspired by domestic Syrian spaces as I kind of understood and experienced them when I used to visit as a kid. Yeah. Um, and the floor plan is loosely based on the floor plan of my grandparents' home in Damascus. Oh. And also just like every 
porch in the neighborhood where like me and the neighborhood kids would just like disappear into the day and play with each other for hours uh-huh. on end. Yeah. Um, and it's clad with, you know, all those same building materials and plant life that I remember being there. It's beautiful. Are those those uh, pink flowers? Um, is that the Jahanamiya? It's so is funny. It- I don't even know the English name for them or like the I think I know the Arabic nickname for them, which is Majnune, which means crazy because they grow they're super oh, okay everywhere um yeah. it, they, they look kind of similar but yeah anyway I, I can't even pronounce the english word for it yeah so. they're so beautiful and they're so distinct to that region i didn't i saw them once in arizona and i was like oh i mean i guess that makes sense it's a desert plant but it's like so tied to home for me yeah beautiful how did you get i mean this is going to sound so <laughs> ignorant because i don't you know i don't understand the technical aspects of this so you said you built some of the pieces from clay and then some of it is digital so how were you able to display it um so at at the time being the the installation it's kind of like an imagined concept that's illustrated in the images oh okay oh so a digital composite yes i would love to one day construct a space like this and just plant it right in the middle of the louvre (laughs) when i'm rich (laughs) you know like one day or at least French famous. French famous. That's so fun. <laughs> That's a famous. whole other type of famous. Right. New, <laughs> new goal. Let me get French famous. Well, I mean, we've got internet famous. We've got local celebrities. And why not French famous? You basically mean... <laughs> That's hilarious. I oh, mean, yeah. You'd, I feel you'd like be, you'd we're be so like, internet famous. <laughs> uh, we're not even internet famous. We're like... If we're any kind of internet famous, we're like D-list. Internet super famous. niche. I know. <laughs> French famous, I imagine, would be like popular in France, well known there. Like the Lebanese are obsessed with you, and oh, yeah. like you're kind of known in like the former French colonial nations. Right. Did you learn French as a second or third language growing up? There were attempts. Yeah. <laughs> Your parents know it. Yeah, my parents both know it because they grew up in Lebanon. If you wanted to go to school, you had to learn English or French. I believe my mom did. French and yeah. my dad did English and maybe they both did French. It's been a while since they told me about this. Okay. Layla, did, did your parents have to learn French in Syria? Um, yeah, my mom went to a French-speaking school and um, she speaks it fluently. I, um, yeah, I'm not. I don't think my dad. <laughs> no, his mother okay. spoke French. I remember a lot of a lot of my relatives would casually they would kind of just yeah. like drop a French word or two into their like vernacular just into their conversations really regularly was there an attempt um there was not an attempt on my part i barely pulled my weight learning arabic that was always kind of rough for me i understand fluently and my speech probably resembles that of like a first grade no it's not it's not like a first grader it's just rusty it's pretty bad Mine is like the level, probably like level of a fetus. <laughs> That's how little I know. <laughs> but but you're working on it. Very, um, very I slowly. could be working harder. I'm not working at all. <laughs> but it's one of those things. I get that's it. So I don't know how anyone can maintain it if they're not like regularly conversing because it's just so different from English. Yeah. 
the syntax, everything. What have responses been from people who have seen Near East? So far, I think positive. It was just exhibited in a show at Carroll University in Wisconsin, just a couple hours away from Chicago. But otherwise, this has kind of been under, like, fairly under wraps and fairly new. Oh, okay. I think hearing from you guys was a really positive, exciting response to the work. I was so excited to see it and read about it. And I just, I knew that I wanted to talk to you more about it because i think it's a really important topic i'm gonna be real i'm i'm just a trash hipster and i just wanted to love it before it was cool oh <laughs> we're some of the we're some of the first no no i'm the trash hipster here you're the trash hipster well i'm excited to speak about it in a serious way for the first time with you two so it's, the feeling is very mutual i'm also really excited that you two exist and that your podcast Aww, exists. i didn't you. get a chance to like really i know I, we were emailing but thank you <laughs> for of this course. Thank you for connecting with us. I don't know, we started this last year, about a year ago. It's been really, 99% of the experience has been really positive. I didn't know what to expect with talking about a subject like Yeah, I mean, we had a a few shitty shitty comments at the start, but then we didn't stop. People with negative responses get bored eventually. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Recently, it's been all good. Um, And were these responses coming from, like, a community that you're a part of in Houston, or was it kind of more... Internet randos. Yeah, more more just, yeah, on the internet. People who didn't know us. People were like, oh, you're such an evil Western influence. Queer Arabs, what those don't exist. Oh yeah, we did get a few a few comments about like queerness doesn't exist here. Jesus, or, like, or how like, do you, yeah. like how do you know this? In that situation, how do you choose to use your energy? Is it like are these like comments really worth engaging with? Is it kind of a yeah. moment that you use to like educate them, or just is that not worth your? time at all like i always wonder i I said at the time like wow that guy has a lot of free time yeah but on our end i feel like at the beginning i was more responsive to that stuff and i thought okay it's my chance to be the good little champion of justice i don't know it gets it definitely gets tiring and after a while i just thought it's best to ignore it and and the comments are not made in good faith they don't want to engage they just want to drag on you yeah, yeah sure. that's the issue when you know yeah when you know that the person you're talking to doesn't actually doesn't have any intention to take anything away from what you say you learn to pick your battles i think right because we encounter those conversations too just within our own you know within other circles within our families definitely within, like you know extended family and relatives and you know like other arab americans that we were socialized with yeah so exactly it, I, I know it comes up and i've also been there firsthand and i've always been one to like get too quickly exhausted i don't do a good enough job of like kind of calling it out when it's uh, wrong that's but... totally understandable one human can only stand so much of that and we're, we're also an era where like Literally everyone has asked the sum total of humanity. If a person wants to be educated, it's all there mm-hmm. to yeah. a ridiculous extent. If I want to learn about the Soviet early era politics and meeting notes, I could look at that up and I would have a pretty good range of it. Like, like <laughs> super, specific. Like super, like yeah. just super obscure. And queer Arab stuff is... It's not that obscure. It's... Yeah. It's like not that obscure and people are publishing a ridiculous amount of stuff now. Mm-hmm. 
So Yeah, and people are speaking for themselves, and it's not all white people talking about queer Arab stuff. White academics. Yeah. It's cool. You saying that you get too exhausted. I totally get it. We all have our quota, and also, I don't know, sometimes you can just see that someone is coming at you in a purely negative or malicious way, and it's really hard to know how to work with someone like that, because if that person's mm-hmm. not willing to meet you halfway, or it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, like, I think the worst I ever saw that was, like, just after the, uh, the there was the shooting in the, in the nightclub in Florida. In was, Orlando. Oh, oh yeah, the, or, the, yeah, yeah, the Pulse nightclub. And mm-hmm. basically all these people were suddenly kind of coming around to, like, all the LGBT forums and spaces and being like, well, this is why you should keep Muslims out. And I'm, and everyone, no one bit, because everyone was like, you're just, you're just trying to split us up here. Fuck that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like a real debate. It was like, oh no, these people are also a part of community and you can have this whole engaged argument about how they're queer, swan up people of all flavors. And now that wouldn't, they wouldn't care. They're just there to basically search. Yeah. It's, I feel like that comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like deflecting the conversation entirely to meet their stubborn, ignorant bias. Yeah, having to shift away from the intended focus. Yeah, like what we should be focusing on. So sorry, we went like way off the rails, but about good <laughs> My th- fault. about no, but about really important things. I guess what are some things that you hope um, Near East will lead people to think about and maybe talk about, discuss? I hope that because so because this kind of takes the example of um, a museum and mm-hmm. in a very powerful institution um, yeah. that people also visit like for educational purposes and recreationally and as like a cultural asset when they're traveling and within their own culture like in their own country for you know the French. Um, mm-hmm. I just hope that the work will encourage people to question like the conceptions that they have of Middle East history when it's presented to them through the institutional framework and through the museum framework. Because no one seems to question that. Like when we were going to the Vatican, we had all this stuff from all over the world that was in this Italian museum. True. Mm -hmm. And like no one seemed to question whether or not they had the actual right to this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, Yeah. all over Europe, all over US. It's like entirely a Western phenomenon. Like the ownership that the museums have over these objects, it appears on the surface to be very, you know, it's pro-education, pro-conservation. And with the example of the Louvre, to this day, they uphold the principle of inalienability um, of their non-Western holdings, uh, which is that basically means that the works in their museums will remain a part of their heritage forever and serve the greater good of making them publicly accessible but like i mentioned earlier that perpetuates a belief that the countries where they came from are incapable of preserving their own history which you know there have been so many cases that prove otherwise definitely one of which even just bringing it back to the u.s yale university conducted an excavation in syria in the 1920s and they removed entire portions of um, dura europos which i believe was also in the north of syria Um, And the artifacts were held, just kept in storage of their facility in New Haven, I think New Haven, Connecticut, Uh just cooped up in storage for decades. And they were so badly neglected and poorly conserved that the pigment used in all of the artwork and all of the paintings, like almost completely faded, which was really upsetting to read about. And one of the associate curators of the gallery at the time took accountability, or not at the time, it was in 2010. They took accountability in an interview for the neglect of the artifacts. Um, but still to this day, what does that change? Because they're still sitting there in a gallery on display to not Syrians. Yeah. <laughs> 
definitely not in the right home for them and not being even if they're being displayed now it sounds like the care for them just hasn't been nearly adequate if you're gonna steal something at least take care of it mm-hmm. yeah that's heartbreaking yeah. yeah but thieves have no incentive to care for their loot right yeah. and um i think the excavations they're fraught with all sorts of other problems which i I want to research a lot more like I've, I've just barely scratched the surface on this topic since I just kind of started. It's interesting to note that, you know, there's also like not so subtle Islamophobia within the practice of Near Eastern archaeology, too, because mm-hmm. it largely focuses on pre-Islamic antiquities. And there have been professionals who formerly worked in the field who have witnessed firsthand during these excavations Muslim like Muslim heritage objects of significance burial sites just being like thrown to the side and kind of looted and removed because they were interfering with a dig for something further down which is also not something that you learn just from visiting the museum and seeing them face to face right and it's not necessarily in the past it's not left in the past either I don't think I think to this day, it's still, you know, the practice of it is still very largely dominated by Europeans and Americans. And up until the very most recent excavations, there was a hierarchy of labor involved that was at play where like those Euro-American archaeologists were exploiting the, you know, the local workers who they employed from the region of wherever they were digging to do the work for them. And they were subject to very exploitative working conditions. Yeah, probably not compensated. Not very well. Wow. Why am I having flashbacks to Indiana Jones and like every digging scene? (laughs) good point oh my god that's one of those movies that i'm like i'm supposed to have seen that at some point and i never did (laughs) we all have those movies oh i have a lot of them me too i think i've i saw it forever ago what specifically is so in i think it's raiders of the lost ark Mm -hmm. uh they were digging around in the desert to find the map that would show them where the lost ark of the covenant was being stored the nazis were of course employing all these local laborers who were of course in the movie depicted as simple somewhat superstitious and incapable of leading for themselves yeah (laughs) they filmed quite a bit of it in jordan didn't they i think I could not. I, th- I know they filmed some of it in Petra. In Petra, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Petra. Yeah, and now I've been reminded, like, oh, hey, like, more complicit Western media. Yeah, I th- well, I sure. think that, like, so much of this, for me, came out of my frustration with my education, like, with my very Western art education, especially being in Chicago and being part of um, the art institute here, being literally required, and this wasn't, This wasn't presented to us as an option. This wasn't something that, like, I don't know, maybe I could have opted out of it, but they don't encourage it. Required to take architecture history classes that entirely revolve around colonialist state buildings that were established in, um, that were constructed in North Africa and the Middle East and South Asia. And that, like, frustration for me was, like, I have this need to re-educate myself drastically. Because it's perpetuating a very, I mean, it's perpetuating a really problematic, a really like violent imperialist mindset. Mm-hmm. Yes, glossing over what all happened, just yeah, just for the sake of saying, like, look what these Europeans 
didn't look at their achievements or right and that's it's frightening to think that like everyone who's getting this education may or may not go on to practice architecture anywhere much less in a city like chicago that's in the present day still very a very segregated city i just don't think that it's an approach that benefits anyone especially in a program where Um, So many of my peers are international students, so they see even less of themselves in the curriculum, too, which is upsetting. Everything is at arm's length for a lot of people. And accessible (laughs) to those with money. Yes. For those who don't know, international students in America are basically gouged for money. Yeah, they are. We have basically a system of what's called in-state tuition, where people who were born, say, who were living in Texas for, say, the last, like, four years... Uh, get lower tuition rates than the people who were, came from another state. Comparatively to that, international students who arrive from abroad pay even higher rates, sometimes exorbitant higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're paying so much to get access to information that's not even inclusive to them. Mm-hmm. And the people who are getting this education are more likely than not to be of moneyed families or the elite already. Yeah, that's so. absolutely real. Kind of like, it's kind of fucked up, sorry. Um, no, no, <laughs> oh, no that, you can like, swearing is, is encouraged. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, that can sometimes be used as like a mark from a marketing standpoint, like boasting the diversity of the student body too. I've seen a lot of that yes. too. Oh my God. And it's, they're basically soaking the rich on this one. So I'm kind of like of two minds of this. I'm like, yes, soak the rich. But it's also like, <laughs> but it's usually like people of color from outside the country who it's dumb and ex- exploitative. It is. And it, even if it's under the guise of progress, there's really nothing progressive about not being accessible and not addressing class. So true. Yeah. So have you created other any other pieces similar to near east or like anything that you could talk about yeah um so prior to this work a lot of my work was formerly a lot more personal kind of drawn from and inspired by my relationship to Syria over the course of the war kind of looking into like how my relationship of like basically separation from Syria was exacerbated by the war. So before I started school for architecture, like in the last handful of years, I was doing a lot of sculptural work and also kind of like large scale installation and sculpture series that recreated my encounters with spaces in Syria from when I used to visit over the summer before the war. I would draw from memory and try to recreate these whether they're really simple domestic spaces. Um, I did a piece that was just about the windows on my grandparents' summer home and also heritage sites that I visited as a kid that I you know, totally took for granted at the time. Yeah. Um, and trying to remember how they appeared to me and how I experienced them from memory without really consulting any like images or photographs. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to say probably the most the most recent piece, which is so sad to say because I, I've been on like such a hiatus while I've been in school. Fair. But the most recent piece I did before this was called Aleppo Bathhouse, which was a and making this kind of solidified my interest in studying architecture. I built basically this room interior, this like seven by seven foot space built from a metal structure clad in cast concrete tiles that I produced to recreate the interior from memory, very much from memory. It's not by any means like a realistic space. My visit to a hammam, a bathhouse in Aleppo, 
when I was maybe 13 years old. Cool. Where are some other parts of, like, what other parts of Syria have you been to? I think mostly we would spend most of our visits in Damascus, and then yeah. we would usually go for a week or a couple weeks to stay with my mom's family in Hama. Okay. But... Um, I also visited Aleppo. We would travel to surrounding countries. I feel like oh, really cool. lucky as a kid. Just at a very young age, I got to see Lebanon a couple times, which I wish I remembered more clearly and like uh, had other memories there aside from like getting my first period and being confused. Oh my God, that's rough. <laughs> Not only, so you're like on a trip and then you're on a trip within a trip. Yeah, oh my god i was like not focusing on lebanon while i was of in course. lebanon i was like what the fuck is going like, what's on? going on with my body <laughs> yeah. oh um, god of course like lebanon was so close and um we went to jordan which i still visit up until very recently because my brother lives there i love um, jordan I've, i I've, love jordan i really so enjoyed much. being there it's it's beautiful yeah, what did you do when you visited? Well, I spent some time in Amman, but also Wadi Rum and Petra. Did you go to Wadi Rum? Yes. Oh, so stunning. Oh, yeah. It's just so, so powerful. Beautiful. Yeah, the stars, I've never seen such a clear sky anywhere mm-hmm. else. Super jelly. Yeah, it just, it, it, like the country embodies so many very drastically different like landscapes um, mm-hmm. and such otherworldly looking landscapes <laughs> yes in such a small space yeah that's yeah, beautiful since you're interested in architecture um and design so like what is some of the architecture like any creations or specific architects who have inspired you so i think if you don't mind i'm gonna like deflect that question a little bit. totally <laughs> i'm like a terrible architecture student in the conventional sense that like good i'm, I'm almost not even there for architecture i'm there for something so different which is like not something i'm like whatever i'm interested in a lot of work that kind of uh, falls at the intersection of architecture and preservation, but also uh, preservation and activism and art and architecture. Nice. And some of the people, now I feel so bad trying to sum up their work because I feel like I, I could never do it justice. But someone who's based in Chicago that I discovered fairly recently is Lee Bay. Lee Bay is an architect, a Chicago-based writer, photographer, and architectural critic. He's coming out with a book pretty soon it's on pre-sale at amazon i think and it's called southern exposure the overlooked architecture of chicago's south side which is a collection of his photographs um, accompanied by writing that delves into the historic and cultural significance of architectural structures and spaces in chicago's south side which are as the title suggests often overlooked yes Um, I think I just his message and his standpoint towards architecture and preservation is something that I really get behind and was one of the reasons I wanted, you know, why I'm interested in it. It has a much more strong focus on the ways that, you know, the generational community identity of a place characterizes the architecture itself and not the other way around. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, so he does he talks about the building, but it's the significance of the building is you know the life that <laughs> the life that is within it yes um, but he uh, also addresses the the very systemic not only like the personal character of these spaces but the very systemic disinvestment that led them to being overlooked in the first place wow so, i'll have to check out that book That's really yeah good. i'm excited for yeah. it i sent him a big long email i'm just like 
because he spoke in my school and I'm like that was oh, all cool. I needed to that was all we all needed to hear thank you <laughs> I'm glad, yeah I'm glad you had that, that something experience. that's um related because right now he's showing some work in collaboration with a project called the Southside Home Movie Project which Ooh. one of my professors MJ Gula is a collaborator with and that is um a digital archive of home movies shot by families and residents in Southside neighborhoods of Chicago and the home videos range from like the 1920s to the 1980s I believe and the project is partnered with the Museum of African American History and Culture in DC so they collect donations of these home videos and the museum then creates digital transfers of the films for free and returns them to the families um oh that's so cool yeah and they get they get played in like public spaces all over chicago and as part of community-led discussions and meetings and um, forums and also like workshops on how to the process (laughs) i'm so unfamiliar with like film processes but workshops on how to create these digital transfers which is really cool i think yeah would you would you like to talk more about analog to digital conversion (laughs) oh no mortified (laughs) no it's it's well worth doing a lot of people sort of dismiss it as like low rent work because a lot of people think oh vhs to dvd transfers and such but i feel like the point of the point of it all is to preserve like the details that are not preserved anywhere else in history you know, yes. like we've discussed in previous episodes, like a lot of the private lives of people hide the details that are like missed by history books and historians because, you know, like gay people in the 30s, 40s and 50s. What did they keep in their houses? That sort of stuff. Where did they live? Mm-hmm. What was on their walls? What highly disposable, like highly disposable media was on their walls? Like what was their art? What was their stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the people who shot these weren't like intent on preserving that. They were intent on preserving the moment in their life where all of that was sort of background. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's true. That slice of life type of thing is can tell a lot. So. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's really cool. Someone else who's doing something kind of similar, her name is Mona Gazala, and she's a Palestinian-American artist and activist who's based in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. So um, that's how I knew her. She recently founded something called the Post-Colonial Art and Research Center out of Columbus. I think it's out of her Columbus studio. So she hosts an archive of, and this is taken from her website, family and cultural items and just educational resources related to Palestinian history, which is so often more difficult to find for obvious reasons of like the dominant narrative that doesn't want us to acknowledge Palestinian life. Yeah. Her work is incredible. She's, I could go on and on about Oh, please do. This is the right place for it. Yeah. I believe she had a residency in Peoria, Illinois, and she worked with people. She communicated um, with people in Bethlehem to acquire a fragment of a demolished home in Bethlehem. Whoa. And she took it to the headquarters of Caterpillar, the company that manufactures bulldozers and such, which are used in the demolition of Palestinian homes for the construction of settlements. Whoa. And she, yeah, she confronted the headquarters with this fragment. I think she was there for several days on end um, and documented the whole thing and engaged in like dialogue with a lot of the workers there too about like their conditions of working for the company and like their livelihood in Peoria, Illinois, it being such a massive employer. 
And yeah, that was a super powerful piece. That was called Palestine in Peoria. And I'm wondering, like, where was this news for us? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I I see what you mean. Like, this kind of thing should be talked about more. But I mean, this artist is doing her part. She's doing her part. It might be just our lazy asses. No, I think that that's one of the reasons I'm very, especially being at a point being in school and being so swamped in schoolwork, I don't get to, like, engage with other human beings beings nearly as much as I would (laughs) like to but like thankfully as cheesy as it sounds thankfully for like Instagram I'm able to kind of seek out other Arab American artists Mm -hmm. and you know that's of course how we that's the platform how like we met yeah Um, exactly it's worth it's just worth all the like seeking it out and because otherwise it's like entirely western art that's imposed on us yeah yeah exactly i think instagram is it's worth wading through the thousands and thousands of things that we see on our feed and then find this one perfect each other yeah we find each other but like yeah sometimes that's really the only way to do it yeah absolutely and so um how have you gotten in contact with a lot of the guests that you've had on the show? Because, I mean, they come from everywhere. Everywhere, right. Some are, like, with us. Um, some have been over social media. Like, we'll maybe just Ugh. see someone who we think is doing really cool work or whatever. Like, in the case of those uh, queer Habibi postcards? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah we, haven't, we haven't had them on, though. Oh. They, they wish to remain uh, yeah. anonymous so so it doesn't okay. always work out but it's like whenever we see something cool we ask and what's the worst they can do is say no yeah and then mm-hmm. we've had a few like reach out to us and tell us what they're up to and we're like yeah come talk to us <laughs> um and then there's other times like we'll have a guest and then the guest will know someone and they'll say hey i know this person and they're they would also be up for being on an episode so it's all it's all very word of mouth and us lightly stalking um mm-hmm. social media yeah people's social media platforms because that really is the way to well that get and connected sometimes it's just friends it's like, and friends of friends yeah sometimes it's like our own friends that we we know in person and then they'll like tell us about someone and so occasionally yeah. address a guest name drops somebody and we were like oh we should check that out and we do yeah yeah so it's been really it's been a lot easier than i expected because when we first started this i thought oh we can have the occasional guest on but now it's gotten to be almost every single episode has a guest because we're just luckily we're finding so many uh, amazing people and it's like it's really not it hasn't been hard to connect and most people seem to be able to spare an hour to talk about whatever their passion thing is Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like if you ask someone to talk about something they love, it's usually it's always almost always a really great conversation. Like like Con- this one. Yeah. Conversely, <laughs> it also means we have far less time to say hate on the haters of Bohemian Rhapsody or something like that, or whatever like <laughs> pe- like petty shit we're into for that moment. Which I think is good. <laughs> I think it's good we don't get petty very often. <laughs> Oh, you here. can still get petty with me. I don't mind. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have plenty. I have plenty of it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, like we just watched. The reason Ellie brought that up is we just watched Bohemian Rhapsody, and like both of us, our personal opinions, and we seemed to agree on this. Like we think the queerness is adequately addressed. Some people don't think it is. So we were just talking about that last night. Yeah. Oh, was it like played down? Oh no, 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 no. No, that's the thing. Like some people think it was played down. Like 
yeah, really played down. And in my opinion, I think the queerness was a central focus of the film. My question is like, what more do people want from that? Especially like when it's set in the 80s and 70s. And 70s. And so you have you have that element surrounding the queerness and like all the challenges that come with being queer in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, if we didn't, basically, if we didn't have guests on, I think we would end up just being really petty and talking about that kind of stuff a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, I didn't see it, but I'm like, it's good to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth seeing. We're also trying to see some of the other ones. What was the, uh, like, Copernicum? That's Copernicum, yeah. I really want to see Copernicum. The one that I did go out to see was Vice. <laughs> oh, how what was about it? Dick Cheney? Yeah, you want to watch that if you just intentionally feel like getting really fucking angry about something. Oh shit! Um, okay, about like things that you already knew, but just reaffirmed it. <laughs> Hard pass. Good to know. Well, yeah, I, I think I'll do it. <laughs> I'll definitely. I do. I do want to. I get into those moods. I get it. Roma. Mm-hmm. I thought Roma was good. Some people thought it was too slow paced, which which I respect. I understand that. But it was very mm-hmm. slice of lifey, and mm-hmm. I feel like some people were watching Bohemian Rhapsodies expecting more slice of queen life as opposed to based on the story of, whereas um, Roma was de- definitely just slice of life. True. <laughs> True. Yeah, I still have to see Roma. Do it. It's, is it on Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah. I, I personally liked it. I've seen people type in, like write comments about how they lost interest halfway through. Because it is extremely slow paced. Yeah, but there's so much intention in the slow pace. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I appreciated that aspect too. I, I like it. I like how like each of the shots, are they linger and you... Kind of have to look at all of them. And Not everything, everything needs to in. be Guardians of the Galaxy. True. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if people want to connect with you, follow you, um, what's the best way? Would you say Instagram or? Yeah, Instagram is a good place to start because I'll always like see my messages on there. Awesome. It's underscore Layla Corey. <laughs> I guess awesome. this will all be like posted by spelling of Yeah, yeah. Posted. Well, yeah. Yeah. And my website is just. Layla-Corey.com where there are more images of the work if any of this seemed really confusing and impossible to follow without seeing images. Yes, we encourage everyone to look. And we apologize to our traveling listeners who are always in a car and can't look this shit up. (laughs) After you're done listening when you're at home, look it up. And you shouldn't do it at work, probably. Do it at work. Do it at work. <laughs> it's not like not safe for work, so you can do it at work. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, like, never mind. It was just me making a good corporate drone joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Uh, Layla, thank you so much for hanging out with us for an hour. Yes, thank you so this much for great. having me. And everyone, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Queer Arabs. We have an email address, thequeerarabs at gmail.com. Ahmed's Arabic side of the podcast is you can contact him at the queer Arabs in Arabic at gmail.com. And our website is thequeerarabs.com. It'll have all of the, the way to contact Leila and um, her website, stuff like that posted on here. So yes, join us in the, in, on the Instagram stalking. Yes. <laughs> join us. Thank, Thank you. Layla. you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.